morning. Uh, welcome to the third in a series of our podcast on indoor air quality. Um, my name is James Smurthwaite from Mitsubishi Electric. Uh, I've got my co-host today, Kevin Pocock. I'm very proud to say today we're joined by two guests, Francesca Brady and Adam Taylor of Air Rated. Um, Francesca's the CEO and, and Adam's the CIO. Good morning. Morning. Thanks for Good having morning. us. Thank you. How are you both? You well? Very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, sunshine in, end of the week, um, can't complain at all. So normally we, we kind of do a bit of an introduction and just get whoever's on to talk a little bit about themselves. So did you want to talk a little bit about where rated and your backgrounds and, and what you do within the business? Yeah, sure. So I'm Francesca, I'm the CEO. Uh, my background is I'm an environmental scientist by trade. Um, I did a master's that specialised in indoor air quality, which was, guys, super niche back when I did it <laughs> um, <laughs> such a thing. Yeah. really come into its own that one's paying its dues um so yeah I worked for a smart buildings platform provider um for a period of time like three years and that was making the um environmental data that was coming into the platform meaningful and relatable um and then aerated formed as a joint venture between a healthy buildings consultancy firm and this smart buildings platform so it was saying, this is how you should be designing your buildings to make them healthy. This is the data in operation. And it was kind of marrying the two together, but communicating that to the end user in the building. It's quite a nice story about how you marry uh, theoretical design with actual data. That's really, mm-hmm. really interesting, Francesca. What, what made you actually, you did say it was quite niche, but what was actually made you choose indoor air quality as, a, as that to, to look at for your masters? So... When I was doing environmental science, there was a lot of focus on air quality, but it was always outdoors. Mm. And then, I mean, one of my professors at the time was in indoor air quality and it was no one was interested in having him as a supervisor because no one was really interested in doing anything to do with indoor air quality because I'm going to say the glamorous topics, probably not the right word, but all of the legislation and policy and everything that was juicy was focused around outdoor air quality. But I was like, I kind of just want to know what's going on inside. Um, And like a couple of my friends are asthmatic and they say that their asthma gets really bad in winter and it's much worse inside. And I was like, well, we should probably pay attention to what we're breathing indoors. Um, But yeah, it was just one of those things where kind of sparked my interest that no one else had an interest in it. I was like, maybe I should get into this. And then, yeah, like I said, it was super niche, but I think a lot more people are finding their way into the indoor environment now. Yeah, or it does completely. And let's be honest, it's, it's kind of the outdoor air quality is something we can't impact on like a on an individual level or, or even, yep. you know, as a, as a business. We can't really change that at the moment. Everyone's collectively trying to drive to better air. Mm-hmm. But indoors, obviously, there's things you can do within buildings that have an, an immediate impact and quite, well, not simple fixes, but fixes that can be kind of yep. undertaken to, to make sure that the air in, inside buildings is, is much better. So yeah, makes perfect sense. Right. Because we've got so many initiatives to improve outdoor air quality and it will have a positive knock-on impact on indoors. But until that point that we all get our act together outside, um, we need to kind of look after ourselves indoors. Definitely. And and Adam, I understand that you're responsible for a lot of the HVAC side of of air rated work. 
Yeah, a scarily long time ago, I did a mechanical engineering degree, and then uh, I, for some reason, I got into building services. I, I took the first job on the job board at university, um, ended up doing uh, ventilation, stayed there for a really long time, sort of uh, worked on design, then moved into um, into sales. And then air quality started being a thing, so I moved into um, natural ventilation and air quality, uh, working for, for breathing buildings for a few years. Um, and then... In 2018, I, I started working for an American company that were trying to bring air cleaning technologies into Europe. Um, and pre-pandemic, no one was really interested in cleaning the air. There wasn't a perceived problem, even in the NHS. Um, so it was, um, yeah, a, a tough sell. Um, primarily, it was places that had really bad outdoor air quality, like Eastern Europe, that were primarily interested. But in the UK, we seriously had our heads in the sand um, until it was uh, until it was too late. And now um, with Air Rated, my side of the business is how does HVAC design and other aspects of building design affect the type of air quality that's achieved within the space? Um, and uh, guiding people, hopefully from as early as possible in the design stage into uh, how to deliver a healthy building. So you've probably got the, the part you're responsible for has probably got the biggest impact impact i guess really on on the quality of the air within within the building yeah once it's built there's only so much you can do so um yeah the earlier we can get involved in the in the design the better so i'm going to go with a really simple question to start off with what makes up a good good indoor air quality what are you looking for to make it kind of a good thumbs up a good, th- good thumbs up from air quality um well as we know air change rates are important um the the main way we look at air quality is by diluting contaminants that are in the space. So uh, a decent ventilation rate is uh, is very important, but that needs to be delivered well into the space as well. If you don't have a good air distribution system, um, then you can put huge amounts of air within the, into the space, but not actually achieve uh, achieve good indoor air quality. Um, the other really big aspect of it is is source control is what are you introducing into that environment, whether that's the the furnishings and and paints that you choose, or if it's where you're dragging the air from. Um, And people's, when people are looking at designing a building, it's what's the easiest, what's the cheapest way of getting air into the building, which isn't necessarily going to be the best way to deliver good indoor air quality. Always. Yeah. It's always that balance, isn't it, between kind of the ideal solution and what's actually affordable for clients which is a battle we come up against with all the time really with our customers so obviously there's minimum standards for air, air quality or or ventilation mm. are they the ideal standards can there be more done to kind of improve those rates i think buildings in the uk we were quite fortunate because part f waded in on office ventilation it kind of ignored most buildings but despite the fact that it's most office workers that have gone home they were at less risk than most other buildings that didn't have very much regulation at all. I mean, the the CO2 limit um, uh, from the health and safety executive is 5,000 ppm, which is way higher than what we would be getting in, in offices. So we started at a good point, but there is still there is still room for improvement from that. And CO2 is obviously one part of it, but obviously there's a load of other things that make up air quality you know vocs and, and, and other things what do you tend to look for in you know in terms of bad properties in air to, to try and reduce those in terms of in terms of sensor technology and, and bringing that into hvac systems if there wasn't a pandemic um 
and people weren't the risk. So at the moment, people are the risk. So CO2 is the indicator of the people. Um, whereas pre-pandemic, we were potentially ventilating buildings. Even if you had a demand control ventilation system and you were ventilating just on CO2, um, you were potentially bringing in air when you didn't need to. So you had a fixed rate ventilation system. You'd probably be dealing with VOCs, but um, ventilating a lot of the time. So system that could ventilate on CO2 or VOC, depending on um, on the time of day, um, the situation with global pandemics at the time. I think that's that's where we need to be with uh, ventilation systems to optimize them. And just, well, I was going to say on that point about indoor air quality and what we look at with something like CO2. Yeah, at the moment, it's used as a really good indicator of overcrowding or poor ventilation. Um, but when we look at it in the wider context of how it impacts us as people, it impacts our productivity primarily with CO2. So Adam was talking about the fact that the health and safety executive have their threshold set at 5,000 parts per million. They're talking about what is safe and CO2 doesn't necessarily impact our health too badly until those really high levels that you would never see in the office. But at around a thousand parts per million of CO2, which is commonplace for office spaces, particularly for meeting rooms, that impacts your cognitive performance the same way that two pints of beer would. So Lloyd's had a daytime drinking ban back in 2017, 2018. So it's like, why are we not taking this with the same seriousness? And we're thinking about more than just what is safe and we're talking about what is healthy and what is productive so that's kind of that's co2 and i think that's probably one of the factors that people are most familiar with along with temperature and humidity which are hugely important factors but unless you get more technical and start talking about volatile organic compounds and pm 2.5 which is particulate matter or fine dust that's kind of the more technical stuff and perhaps the terminology that not a lot of people are familiar with, particularly building occupants. They'll be like PM 2.5. Yeah, it's gone over that? my yeah. head. <laughs> um, and it's, it's basically fine dust that's around 3% of the width of a human hair. So invisible to the naked eye. There's really nasty stuff and it can get really deep into the lungs and aggravate symptoms of asthma and other respiratory conditions. Um, and it's one of those things that is probably one of the more harmful pollutants that we look at. But things like PM 2.5 and nitrogen dioxide, those two things are heavily influenced by what's happening outside. So on Adam's side of things, those two are huge, important factors to be thinking of when it comes to the building design, along with humidity, temperature, all the rest of them, really. When it comes to VOCs, we're more interested in the behavior and the use and the activity indoors. Because I think Adam said this, but VOCs are primarily driven by indoor point sources. So cleaning products and like even perfumes and food. And some of them aren't harmful at all, but some of them really are. At their worst, they're carcinogenic, but even they can just be irritants to like your skin and your eyes and your airways. So, I mean, the big picture of indoor air quality is it's a beastly topic. But in terms of particularly what we look at with air rated, there are five fundamental parameters. So CO2, temperature, humidity, TVOCs and PM 2.5. Just so we're kind of standardizing our approach, but making it familiar to people. So it's not this kind of um, uh, beastly topic that they need to get familiar with. It's quite, quite easy to digest. 
I really like the way you break that down. I think something you you said really shocked me actually. That that thousand parts per million is like mm. two pints, and I, I deal quite a lot with the higher education sector, um, mm. and I dread to think what that combined with students on a hangover in a lecture in the morning. <laughs> um, or a load of toddlers running around having had two pints of CSE. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm quite interested in whether or not. Because I suppose the next step in from from like getting the basic air quality right is 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 actually almost marketing a building on air quality. And I'm I'm wondering if if eventually I don't know if you you've had it. I, I'm sure most people have. When you sit in a, a auditorium at like a company conference or something, mm. you find yourself getting drowsy. And I've I've only probably just linked that to most of the time. I probably haven't had a beer at lunch, and <laughs> you you sort of feel yourself getting a little bit drowsy. And and it must be that mm. the the CO two levels creeping up throughout throughout the day because you've got mm, a few absolutely. hundred people in a room. And that's really interesting. The the, the performance side, um, the human performance side, is really interesting mm. actually. Mm, absolutely. That obviously it has a bit it does have a big impact on productivity and we, we've spoken to um nathan wood in the past about schools and those kind of sectors as well are, are businesses now starting to look at indoor air quality as another major positive i suppose if they can get it right to get more production out of the people that are working in their offices they're not just looking at it as a health thing they're actually looking at you know way going way beyond that have you got people that are coming to you to get you to sort that out for them and to yeah um, improve it so i mean particularly when and this is such a cringe term and I think they use it in football a lot but here I go uh controlling the controllables so it's one of those things where productivity can be impacted by so many different variables maybe you're just having a really crummy time at home um but if you've got air quality optimal in the workplace it's giving you the best chance to be the healthiest most productive person you can be regardless of all these other things that might be impacting you before COVID, it was air quality, healthy buildings. It was all seen as a nice to have. Then there was a shift when more and more research came out about the productivity element. There was a shift to a compelling competitive advantage because you could quantify the benefit of healthy buildings and healthy spaces and improving the productivity of your workforce, um, which using that JLL rule of thumb, 1990, 90% of your expenditure goes on payroll. So if you can make your workforce more productive, then that is massively impactful for your, for your bottom line. Now that COVID's happened, it feels like a must-have in terms of gaining confidence back in the workplace. There's always been a duty of care, but it just feels like it's more poignant now and people are actually exercising it. <laughs> Not that it's, they weren't It's come before. to the surface. It has come to the surface, yeah. So it's come bubbling up and duty of care is now at the forefront of everyone's minds and gaining confidence back in the workplace, particularly if you're talking about health and productivity. If someone can say, well, I think that the air quality is better at home, therefore I'm going to work at home, then there is that argument to say, well, if the workplace isn't as healthy or productive, then yeah, people should be able to work at home. And then it's this face-off yet again between the office and the home environment and how they're competing with each other. Um, but in terms of using it as like a marketing tool, We've seen the value of an air score being transparent about the air quality to accelerate leasing campaigns, reduce void periods, because there's so much information about indoor air quality and ventilation in mainstream media. So prospective tenants going around a space know to ask the question. And we had a case where one of our clients, a prospective tenant was coming around their building and on their list of key moving criteria, it was a classic rent size location 
but then indoor air quality and ventilation were an item on that list. Okay. So I think that was when people started to become conscious of the fact that they need to do something now. And whilst people are still not really working in the office, being proactive about this is the way to go. But also kind of giving that control back to people to say, this is the quality of space. So we're equipping you with the information and empowering you with the knowledge that you need to feel safe coming back into the space, I think is really valuable. So office owners are actually using the indoor air quality people who own premises are using that now as kind of a bit of a marketing tool to either get more rent out of it or make it a more rentable property, I guess. Absolutely. And there is an argument to say that, I mean, you have people who wait for legislation and regulation, but actually that bar is set by occupier expectation and demand because people can afford to be picky now about where they choose to rent either office location or homes. We can afford to be picky and particularly because there is this hybrid setup now with people working from home more and more. It's going to be a huge amount of estate rationalisation, people shrinking their spaces, and they will choose the best quality spaces. So it's only a matter of time until people really need to be paying attention to this. So what's what's going to have the biggest impact on the indoor air quality score then? what's um, What can be done to, to improve it the best? Depends how you look at that question, because the thing that impacts indoor air quality the most if you're looking at something like pm 2.5 or nitrogen dioxide is going to be the outdoor environment primarily um particularly in a naturally ventilated space but also in a mechanically ventilated space with something like tvocs it's going to be how people use the space but when i was talking before about the types of parameters we look at and pm 2.5 or particulate matter being one of the most harmful that would have If you were going to weight these things dependent on their impact on health, that would be weighted with more seriousness because it has a more harmful uh, impact on our bodies. But in terms of what has a significant impact on IAQ as a whole, it's probably outdoor air quality. I don't know if Adam would agree with me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, With with most buildings, the the HVAC system is designed to look after itself and just designed to be economical um, and, and sustainable. But if you take a standard filter, which F7 in old money, um, that lets 99% of particles by number straight through it. So yeah, there's a massive in, um, ingress in pollution from outside. And we can see that in the data. If you track outdoor air quality and indoor air quality um, together, you can see that, yeah, by far, that's the biggest um, uh, effect on the indoor space. And in terms of people's perception of it, like Francesca alluded to, the invisible things that are really harmful to people, which is the VOCs and the and the PM 2.5, people won't really pick up on those, whether they're bad or not. So it's important to look after them because they won't notice. The temperature and the humidity and the CO2, that will affect people. And and they that's what gets on people's nerves. And that's what people talk about all the time. Oh, I'm too hot, I'm too cold. So by looking at the five parameters that we do look at, you're taking care of what people care about and what they need to care about all in one go. Do you think there's there's a balance between sustainability and efficiency of a building and, and the indoor air quality? I remember getting quite a lot of calls at the start of the pandemic from clients who were putting their ventilation systems onto full fresh air, which was bringing in a lot of air changes and improving the air quality. But also they've then got their heating and cooling systems firing away at max to, to, to actually over, overcome the number of air changes. Yeah, absolutely. And 
providing the outdoor air quality was good. They were probably providing good indoor air quality during those um, those periods. But where it becomes really bad from a sustainability point of view is when it wasn't designed to operate like that in the first place. So if you take a system that is meant to have a large proportion of, uh, of recirculation, when it's very hot or very cold, the system isn't going to be able to maintain the temperature properly. Um, when the ducts aren't sized correctly for higher air volumes um, and the, the filter sizes, etc., you're going to have big pressure drops and lots of energy wasted. So if you want good air quality in the building, which people will from now on, this is going to be the catalyst that drives it, you need to think about how you're going to deliver good air quality from initial concept before a hole gets dug in the ground um, you need to be prioritizing air quality and that may mean higher ventilation rates so bigger risers um, and with the majority of plant um, if, if you want lower pressure drops you need bigger you need bigger kit so we're going to have more space allocated to plant but fortunately with buildings there isn't going to be that appetite to cram lots of people in buildings so uh, hopefully there shouldn't be too much resistance to having more efficient, substantial HVAC systems because that's what people want. There'll be less people in buildings, but the um, the quality of them will be be much better. That's that's really interesting. Have you actually just thinking about? It, have you had any clients that you've measured before and after the pandemic and looked at the impact of the of of less people in an office on the indoor air quality? So, I mean, there was a significant improvement in indoor air quality when people left and this is where just going off on a bit of a tangent but this is where the problem lies in terms of indoor air quality monitoring in a space so the ongoing continuous monitoring which is absolutely the best thing to do but from a landlord's point of view they're like well i understand the concept of delivering good air and yes i realize that i need to be transparent about that and say this is the quality of space i'm handing over to you as an occupier but they do understand very well that the occupier will completely compromise the indoor air quality. And, and that's true. So we have seen this change of really high levels of CO2 and TVOCs because they are usually generated by people and activity in a space drop off a cliff. And now you just see the baseline. The CO2 baseline does fluctuate with what's going on outdoors, which again was really interesting because we could see as lockdowns were being lifted, the CO2 baseline indoors would increase. And it is this argument, again, it's all about the indoor-outdoor continuum, is what it's called, but the relationship between the indoors and the outdoors, that that is raising the baseline of the indoor CO2. So, and Adam gets very passionate about this, where we talk about what levels of CO2 should be indoors, but sometimes they are seen as almost too strict if we're talking about like 600 parts per million, when we know for a fact in densely packed urban areas, the baseline is substantially higher. But also you've seen the hockey stick graph of where before the Industrial Revolution, we were trending quite nicely with 300, 350 parts per million. And now it's shot up to way above 400. So it's this argument of in an inner city area, you are trying to dilute a space with higher concentrations of CO2. Um, but going back to the change in indoor air quality, now that you don't have people in a space, you can also really nicely see, I say nicely because I just love looking at the data and I love the trends, but so nerdy. But you can see in <laughs> indoor PM 2.5 trending again really nicely with activity outdoors. And Adam loves to tag me in stuff about 
I love fireworks night just because you can see the impact of the outdoors on the indoor environment. So fireworks uh, go off on the 5th of November and they do release at the time that they explode lots of NOx gases, but also lots of PM 2.5. And that takes a little bit of time to come back down to baseline, but you can see exactly the same trend indoors. So everyone else is kind of stood there looking at the fireworks going off and you've got your back to the whole thing, checking out the air quality on your, on your device. You're the same inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's ridiculous. But you do see, so the indoor air quality when people aren't in the space has a really nice pattern um, with regards to what's going on outdoors. But yeah, as soon as you can, you can actually tell that people are coming back into the space because you can see spikes in CO2 during operational hours and all that sort of stuff. And you can almost tell how many people there are because when we were monitoring spaces before COVID, they were obviously at full capacity or true capacity, um, which could have been at any one time, a couple of hundred people. Um, So we can see what the CO2 concentration was then with full occupancy. And now it's down at probably like 10, 15, maybe 20% occupancy. And you can see the CO2 level now and say, well, theoretically, Uh, I know that there are 12 people in because if I'm doing like a direct conversion between the two CO2 values, you can make a pretty good estimate, which is interesting. Obviously, until you've got poorly ventilated spaces and then that's a whole different variable to take into account. But... (laughs) And you sort of mentioned about the environment really with, with fireworks going off and all that kind of stuff and has that a big impact on kind of the outdoor air quality within regions. Um, obviously, central London is quite a good one to, to look at at the moment with the fact they've got um, kind of electric areas, aren't they, within inside the city where you're not allowed any kind of um, petrol emitting or, or diesel vehicles that are in that area. Are you seeing a, a kind of a good improvement at the moment with the electrification of vehicles and actually the outdoor air quality is obviously then having a big impact on indoor air quality, which means people can start to open windows in London and things like that, which is unheard of. Is is that, mm-hmm. you start to see that trend coming in or? Yeah, so it's kind of, I mean, I guess the starkest improvement we saw was when we went into lockdowns, the first lockdown in particular, and people just stopped driving in inner city London. And that's when like the wildlife started coming back into the streets. So we could see then that air quality dramatically improved when we stopped using cars. And these are cars like petrol cars and diesel cars that produce uh, greenhouse gases or uh, NOx gases. So we can see it improve there. And the same theory can be applied to a switch to electric vehicles because they won't be giving off these nasty gases. So we should, in theory, be able to see that improvement. We haven't yet just because of the... I mean, electric vehicles are being uptaken more and more rapidly, but still not with any significant impact on the indoor environment yet. But there's the expansion of the ultra low emission zone. And there is this shift by 2030, no new diesel and petrol cars. All of that will have a positive knock on impact, but it's probably just going to take a while to get to that point. But obviously Um, buildings that are designed now are going to be going way beyond mm. that 2030, 2040, 2050. So are people starting to look at designing their buildings with that in mind that, that the outdoor air quality is going to be significantly improved so the way they design them is, is completely different? Yeah, we're looking at a number of uh, projects at design stage now which are currently outside the ultra-low emission zone, but by the time they're completed, they will be um, in. So that's something that we have to consider when we're suggesting that optimizations to the design we need to think about what the air quality is going to be like 
in the future because if you just put very high grade filters in in buildings and ask them to put carbon filters and then by the time it's actually fitted there isn't a requirement for them from a compliance compliance point of view then you're going to be using more more energy so we do need to look at i mean some other buildings we're looking at are four or five years out and um, fortunately where we've got repeat customers we're uh, we've been engaged very early because they they see the value in um, in taking a look at air quality first thing. But um, yeah, we definitely need to look at it. Otherwise, we'll be over specifying buildings. And I think it's quite nice how we're thinking about how to future proof ourselves to improving air quality rather than future proofing ourselves against something sinister, which is quite nice to be talking about at the moment because it's like we have to make ourselves resilient and future proof to human health pandemics now that that is a thing um and the physical climate the climate crisis so changing physical climates it is quite nice that there is this other factor where we're future proofing ourselves against improving outdoor air quality isn't that a news story but people like bad news stories not really good ones <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we like good ones that, okay, that's, good. <laughs> yeah 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 i mean it's it's really good that people are starting to look at that and i guess unless legislation changes and we go through this quite a bit we talk about it internally as a team it takes one major event or one kind of yeah. thing to, to get the public on board and to understand the risks that that they're under and obviously covid has been one of those things and it, now people are more aware of the air they're breathing and, and how many people are in a particular area and things like that so is there now changes starting to come into the actual legislation is there is there something that's going to happen in the next three or four years that's going to make indoor air quality much more of a focus and, and not just CO2 levels and, and air recirculation rates and all those kind of things. Are they starting to look at bringing other things into into that legislation? Finally, yes, I think they are. It's, it, it's We've been a very long time without new legislation and we've seen uh, with promised legislation, BB101 is an example. It was known that there was a problem in schools and it was delayed and delayed and delayed. Um, but there seems to be a bit more energy around... Um, upgrading ventilation guidance right now and part f uh, was out for consultation at the beginning of the year that's now closed so hopefully we'll see an upgrade um, and alterations to that come august time um, and there they're talking about um, increasing ventilation rates within offices but not necessarily all the time some of the suggestions was that the hvac system has the ability to sort of purge ventilate the space and operate at higher ventilation rates when um, when there is an issue um, I mean they um, and that's also for domestic dwellings as well that was a bit ahead of um, the, the office guidance I think we'll see um, new British standards talking about wellness SIBSI TM40 was released oh I'm trying to think I was there when it got released I think it was last year now um, so health and well-being coming from the likes of SIBSI because it's always been um, an elite thing health and well-being was an elite aspiration whereas now fortunately it's it's going to be in standard legislation rather than just for the the very pinnacle of building good good I, yeah i think speaking to people in the past it's as you said it, it's been a luxury previously it's something that people if people can afford to have good filtration at home or in the office it's it's seen as a nice to have it's not really a necessity but obviously as you said now people are going to have to start to adopt it and people like you said will want to work at home rather than going to the office if they can see the air quality is not good in the environment they're in they'll start to be a bit more aware of how they're feeling in a particular environment because the air quality is not quite good enough so i think it's coming and um obviously the work that you guys are doing and, and others within the industry is having a massive impact on that which is great 
I just had a quick question for you both actually thinking thinking about it is is there anything that people can do so, so like I know that meeting rooms are quite bad for it is that is there any sort of best practice things that people could do now to improve the indoor air quality in in those rooms so it's kind of dependent on what setup you have so if you're in a meeting room and you're in one of those big tower blocks so your windows don't open there isn't that much you can do apart from maybe like, if you're not having a particularly sensitive meeting leave the meeting room door open but this is where it is quite good to have some sort of monitoring system so something to tell you that the levels are going above 800 approaching 900 so you can do something proactively um, rather than waiting to the point that you're getting really headachey or you feel that it's stuffy and then you open a door we have a best practice guidebook so we give it to landlords so they can empower their occupiers with the information they need because you don't know what you don't know and this is the whole thing around they think the responsibility lies with the occupier because the occupier is screwing up the space. The occupier thinks the responsibility lies with the landlord because they're like, you're welcome, I've actually taken space here. Whereas we see the responsibility lying with the landlord to say, this is the quality of space we're delivering to you, but we're going to empower you with the information you need to best use your space. So in this guidebook, we say things like, after a meeting, leave the meeting room door open so the CO2 and TVOCs can come back down to equilibrium. When you're in that meeting itself, it's quite nice to be able to track what the CO2 is so that you know that maybe you need to cut the meeting 10 minutes short because you're going to exceed a thousand parts per million. And it's really not productive for anyone at that point. Um, so I think that's probably how to manage it best in terms of best practices of space. But knowing what you're working with is the key here. That's, br that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I think we'll probably be a bit more aware of it as we start to get back to our office and marine environments. We'll be flagging up the mm. fact that it is getting a bit stuffy. We need to take a break. We all need to go outside, you know, come back a bit more refreshed and, and do all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's brilliant. It's really good. Um, just wanted to say a massive thank you to you both for coming on today. I know it's taken up your time and you're busy at the moment, but um, really, really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom and, and your thoughts on what's going on at the moment. So thank you very much. Thanks. Um, I, I just wanted to ask well, one last question just before oh, go on, we finally wrap up. Where can we find out a bit more about Air Rating? Uh, people that are listening want to find out a little bit more about what you guys do. So uh, Adam and I are very active on LinkedIn. So we can give you our LinkedIn links so that you can share it with people. Our website is a really good place to go to. So airrated.co. Yes, we're very new era. .co, not .co.uk. We have, what else do we have, Adam? Instagram, Lot, Twitter. Lots of social media, yeah. On, yeah. on all the platforms. We are. And then we've also got, um, we did a big report at the beginning of the year called Our Air in Review, which is you have to get your pronunciation right for Our Air <laughs> in Review 2020. So it's like retrospectively looking at what happened in 2020 from both a sustainability point of view and also indoor air quality and outdoor air quality. So a really nice piece of literature to just get your teeth into. Um, so we'll send you a link as well to that. Fantastic. Thank you very much, guys. Well, have a good, uh, good rest of the week and we will speak yes. to you again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you.